When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. I'm so excited for you all to listen to this episode, which is an interview I did with Linda Holmes about her new book, Flying Solo. Um, Linda's previous book was Evie Drake Starts Over, and she was on the podcast for that. She's also the host of uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour NPR's roundtable culture and entertainment podcast. She's also a delight to follow on social media. So I was very excited to talk to her about flying solo. And I hope you all enjoy this interview. If you want to get a hold of us on the podcast, of course, you can uh, follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at ProBookNerds and email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And with that, I hope you enjoy this interview I did with Linda Holmes on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to your new book, Flying Solo? Yes. Uh, Flying Solo is a book that takes place in a small town in Midcoast, Maine, actually the same one where my first book, Evie Drake Starts Over, took place, but it is a completely new story. Um, it is about a woman whose name is Lori, who is uh, has just called off a wedding that she did not particularly want to have. And she uh, comes home to her hometown to clean out the house of her very beloved great aunt, Dot, who was 93. And uh, she feels kind of responsible for making sure that even though Dot was a single woman who didn't have kids and wasn't married, that somebody kind of makes sure to be careful with and, and take care of all of her things. So Lori undertakes to clean out the house. And while she's cleaning out the house, she finds a a mysterious wooden duck decoy at the bottom of a chest. And she sets out to kind of try to figure out what its history is. At the same time, she um, she reconnects with both her best friend from when she was young uh, and her first love, her old boyfriend, who is now the town librarian. So, you know, and she brings in a variety of other people as she kind of tries to figure out this duck situation. So that's sort of the semi-short version. Duck situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. So I saw on your website that the idea for this came from a period in your life when you were watching a lot of Antiques Roadshow. That is true. This is a pandemic written book. Um, and, you know, I found the pandemic actually a, a really, really difficult time to write. I think a lot of people thought it would be a great time to write. And I'm sure for some people it was. For me, it was a very difficult one, but I did watch a lot of television. And after I got through kind of all the exciting new television that I had not watched, I went into kind of Um, you know, comfort series and things like that. And one of them was Antiques Roadshow. And I was watching people, uh, you know, talk about um, items that they owned that sometimes it was because it was, it was, uh, had potentially monetary value. 
sometimes it had sentimental value simply because this belonged to my mother, this belonged to my aunt or my grandmother. But the ones I really loved were the ones that had a story, a story of kind of how you came to have this thing. And sometimes those stories are sad. Sometimes they are lovely. Sometimes they are surprising. Um, but the ones I was most interested in were the ones where there was some kind of story of how the person came to own the item. And that's kind of what, what got me thinking about this book and the ideas for this book. So yeah, directly from Antiques Roadshow and a friend of mine who is very into antiques. And um, I went to him to sort of talk about what specific kind of item it should be. And he said duck decoys. So, you know, you got to have the right friend at the right time. There you go. Who knew? Who knew? Um, I have to say, when I started reading it, um, you know, having had gone through that process of helping clean out the home of someone mm-hmm. I'm related to who has died, I was just like, oh, this feels very, it's so hard. You're like, you're like, what do I keep? What do I give away? And then you mm-hmm. find things like a duck decoy. I did not find that specifically, but you find things that kind of surprise you. Um, so mm-hmm. I really loved that that's sort of how you, you know, opened the, um, the present timeline in that, in the, in the book. Yeah. You know, I just was speaking to someone the other day who is an older, uh, lady who said that she, um, she had an issue in her own house where she could not, there were certain things she said, I'm too old for it to be my kid's toys, but it was my grandkids toys. And I, I was cleaning out my house and I could not bear to get rid of them. So I think she said it was her son came to the house and just, she just kind of said, take it all out of the house. She didn't actually care if it disappeared, but she couldn't bear to throw it away. And I, it's so interesting to me that people, they know the things have to go. They know they have no place for it, but it breaks their heart a little bit to actually get rid of it. And so a lot of this, a lot of this story is also thinking through those kinds of attachments. Yeah. It's definitely something that, um, you don't really necessarily know what you're attached to until you're sort of faced with the prospect of possibly needing to get rid of it. Absolutely. What am I going to do with this thing? I don't know, but I don't want to get rid of it. Absolutely. And there are things I think everybody has been through that in their own life with, you know, perhaps a gift that someone gave you that maybe it's not a, you know, it's not a fancy gift and maybe it's not something you're ever going to use again, but the experience of their giving it's of their, um, is, is precious and makes it special. And yeah, it's the, the attachment to objects and the reasons why we have attachments to objects. That was a big, a big part of, of the, the impetus behind this book and kind of Lori trying to figure out why was this kept and why was it kept and not displayed? Like a lot of other things are displayed in the house. Why was this kept sort of in this kind of secret place? Um, and, and what's the story behind it? So you mentioned that, um, it, the story brings her back together with uh, Nick, who is the town librarian. We love uh-huh. a librarian. We love a town librarian. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that is simultaneously pandering to a reading audience in a certain way, but also very much from the heart because it's very much the the way that I um, the way that I feel about about people who people who manage libraries. I think especially right now, you know, particularly. Mm-hmm in the pandemic, post pandemic, whether you're talking about kind of, you know, politics of books, or you're talking about how very, very hard people in libraries have worked just to keep them open, to keep them functioning, to make services accessible for people. It really sort of, I think, um, you know, made my longstanding, um, you know, 
cerebral crush on librarians, perhaps even more acute. And, and that probably is part of how I wound up writing this guy. For sure. Um, I'm curious, when you start started the book, did you sort of, did you work from an outline? Did you know where it was going or did Lori end up making a lot of the decisions? I am not a big outliner usually, um, particularly with my first book with Evie, it was really not an outlined book at all. It was really a create the situation, create the people and see, I sort of knew where I wanted to end up, but I, but I didn't necessarily know all the pieces. This book has more, this book is more plotty. This book is more, it has more of a, it has a mystery element kind of that has to all fit together. It has almost a heist element and a mystery element and a caper element. And all those things require a little more planning to make sure everything's going to fit together. So I did more, I don't know if it was outlining, but it was definitely more kind of planning. What was the outcome Um, although I will say the ultimate sort of solution to the question of what the story of this duck is, I did not know at the beginning of writing the book, it sort of came up in the middle of writing the book. Um, you know, perhaps the answer is, and then I knew immediately, as soon as I thought maybe this is the answer, I thought, oh no, that's definitely the answer. That's the right answer. So it's got a combination of both a little bit of, um, a little bit of improv and a little bit of, uh, planning. That's probably the good way to go about it. And I, yeah, I like that you mentioned that there is this sort of uh, blending of genres in a way. There's the, the love story we have, we have the mystery and the heist. This is just like a very cozy book in that it covers all of these different um, types of other books, like all in one. It just, it was delightful to read. I'm glad, I'm glad. I'm always trying to write, as I think a lot of people do, I'm always trying to write the book that I want to read. And I think- particularly at that time, because I started writing this book at the very beginning of 2021 or late in 2020. And at that time, I really wanted, you know, people use the word cozy and it's easy to to sort of think like, oh, is there, is that good? Is it bad? Is it neutral? It's very much what I wanted at that time. So it makes complete sense to me that that's kind of where we ended up. And one thing I have to say, you know, we, as you said, Dot has died and Lori has gone to sort of clean out the house. There's a brief um, scene at, as like a prologue when Lori's young and she goes to Dot's house to spend the night. Even though Dot is not existing in the present, it really, she's like a very full-fleshed character all the same. And I don't know how you did that, but. <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing, right? It's, it's, through the existence of people's things is a big part of it, right? You get a lot of information about what she owned and what is in her house and how she's remembered. But also, you know, we did add, it was sort of in the editing process that we added that prologue where um, Lori's young and she's spending time with Dot. And it was partly because she is such an important character that we felt like you want to see her um, in, in a present moment in what is for her a present moment. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really glad that you, I'm glad that you reacted that way. Cause to me, she's absolutely a, a significant character in the book. Um, even though she is mostly in memory, um, throughout the telling of the story, but mm-hmm. to me, she's a, I love that character. And I, you know, I knew a certain, I had a certain number of female relatives. I was talking to somebody about this the other day for a variety of reasons, some that were widowed very young, some that married quite late, some that never married at all. I knew a significant number of women who 
lived on their own for long stretches of their lives. And, and I, I love her. I think she's a, she's a fun one to me. I enjoy thinking about her. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the town, um, Calcasset that the, both of your books, as you said, are set in. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can maybe walk through the process of like just developing this small town. And I'm, I'm specifically interested to know if there are any new destinations in the town that you discovered sort of as you were writing Flying Solo that did not appear in Evie Drake? Sure. I mean, the primary one is the library that, that Nick works in. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I did want to give him a place and a, and a thing that was his own. So you have obviously Dot's house, you have, um, you have that library, you have um, Nick's grandmother is a character who appears in Evie, but only very briefly. Um, She's the owner of the local minor league baseball team. And she has a house that is a converted lighthouse. And that house is briefly alluded to in, in Evie, but in this book, you get to kind of go and and visit it and and be in that house. Um, That book is a, that place, that house is very much a, a, an absolute flight of fancy on my part, based on having seen lighthouses when I was young and thinking maybe you could live in a lighthouse, which it turns out you can, but I don't think you can live in a lighthouse (laughs) like this. It's, it is a, it is, um, it is a, a work of fiction, but, um, so I would say mostly those things, you know, a couple of things like a restaurant or two, stuff like that. But, um, you know, it is mostly in different, it's mostly in different places, but it's held together by the same, the same community, essentially. Do you have a map of the town? I always wonder about that with small towns, if you have a map. I don't. I think if I had grown up being like more of a person who read fantasy novels, I would probably have done a map. I do have a sense of certain facts about the history of the town. I tried, I tried not to do anything inconsistent as between the two books. I'm not sure that's completely the case, but I tried to not contradict anything about Calcasset in the second book that I had said in the first book. Um, It does have its own history. It's, it's a, you know, it's a town that, that um, was a lobstering town, has been a lobstering town, still is one, but um, not as much as it used to be. There's a mention in the first book of the fact that it once had a shoe factory, which a lot of these small towns in Maine had shoe factories, which is one of the things I learned when I was researching. Um, So yeah, I, I discovered certain things about it, but no map, no map. Maybe I should draw one. That's a good idea. <laughs> You're welcome. I, that's funny. You said the fantasy thing. And I was like, oh, yes, you just completely called me out on that. I did grow up reading I fantasy. think it's the kind of thing where, no, see, this is my thing. Like one of my dearest friends is a guy who reads a lot of fantasy novels and always says, I always want a map. Like I always want there to be a map in the book. And I think it's one of those things where when you read in one genre, there are elements of that genre that spill over into the way you read in other genres. So it makes total sense to me that it's like, it would make sense to you or to him. There should be, you know, if this is an established town and you've gone to the trouble of thinking about it in your head, why is there not a map? Why wouldn't there be a map? You should make a map. Um, And I think that comes from, you know, I think that comes from either fantasy or history reading mostly, I would say. 
That's so interesting. I never had really considered that because you're right. I'm like, I want a map of places, especially like cozy little small towns like this. <laughs> it makes all the sense in the world. It makes all the sense in the world. I probably could, I probably could do one if I, if I put my mind to it and went back and checked out everything I had ever said about its, uh, about its geography. Um, do you plan on writing more novels set in this town? I don't. Um, I never planned to write a second one. Um, but I think when I got deeply into, you know, not to keep going back to this, but when I got deeply into the pandemic and I was, and I was struggling to write, I think I had this feeling of, I really wanted to go back to that town. And I really wanted to go back to that character I mentioned of Nick's grandmother. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see her again, and, you know, cause like I said, she's very, very briefly in the first book. And, you know, a couple different people had said, you know, I was fascinated by that woman. She seems like she had an interesting story. So even though this book isn't really about her, I wanted to go back to her. I wanted to go back to that town. I think it had something to do with, you know, looking for the cozy and familiar, as we were saying before, just because it was such such a difficult, difficult time. Yeah, I've I've spoken, obviously, you know, over the past two years to a lot of writers um, who have written books start to finish edited all of that like you um, during the pandemic. And I don't think you are alone in finding it a challenging time to write books. And one thing I have, um, I usually ask is, is there anything sort of from your experience of, of writing during the pandemic that kind of ended up in the book in some way? That is a great question. I think I think that the entire, there is a push and pull in this book that is about independence and interdependence between people because Lori is somebody who has lived by herself for most of her life after leaving um, home to go to college. She grew up in a house that was very crowded, very noisy. Um, a bunch of brothers, you know, just a really kind of busy, noisy atmosphere. She wound up being somebody who really valued being by herself and really valued the quiet. And I, I have always thought of myself as somebody who really enjoyed quiet and was a little bit of a, I love to be out among people. Don't get me wrong. I love to be out among people. I love to go and hang out with friends but I also really value coming home and having it be really quiet. I've also lived by myself for the great majority of my adult life. And I do think something about the pandemic made me think about how much alone do you want? Do you have to want all of it? Because if you lived alone, you know, as a person who lived by myself, I did not touch another human being other than a doctor for a year. And that is a profound experience, I think, for at least some people. It was for me. And one of the things that made me think, you know, it, it gave me this moment where I was like, oh, I normally don't mind being alone and I'm normally not lonely. I'm lonely now. Yeah. When I get lonely is when I can't go see anybody, when I can't go visit anybody, I can't have anybody over, I do become lonely. So it kind of made me think a lot about the contours of wanting to be by yourself versus wanting to be with other people versus how quiet is too quiet. And so I do think ultimately that made its way into the book. I had, I had wanted for a long time to write a story that respected kind of people wanting their own space. That was not new to the pandemic, 
But I think the consideration of quiet and company and and as I said, independence and interdependence came partly from my experience as a, you know, my experience of extreme isolation um, that I had never had never done and, and hope to never do again. Sure. So you mentioned at the beginning that um, you were watching Antiques uh, Roadshow and that was uh-huh. sort of part of it during the pandemic. And of course, you talk a lot about pop culture. And so I do have to ask if there were other comfort watches that you had um, over the past two years. There were. And I feel like the problem is I'm going to the problem is I'm going to forget them because here's the weird thing. I genuinely feel like I, I was mentioning this to, to somebody the other day. I almost feel when I think particularly about the year 2020, I feel almost like I didn't form real memories. Like the mm-hmm. isolation was so, um, was so uh, extraordinary and affected my brain in this way where I feel like I don't remember anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about Antiques Roadshow, it's like, I know I did that and I know I was doing that, but it feels extremely remote. Um, but I definitely have had tons of comfort watches. Uh, I think I watched, and not all of them are obvious comfort watches, right? Antiques Roadshow is an obvious one. Great British Bake Off is an obvious one. I've watched, I think, all of those seasons a couple of times. I also watched Succession in full like three times during the pandemic just because the storytelling is so good and because I find the show so interesting. I watched that all the way through like a couple times. I think every movie that I really love, um, I love Knives Out. I love Mm. um, Spy with Melissa McCarthy is one of my favorite movies. All of my like really beloved movies, I probably watched at least twice, twice, three times during that, during that time. So yeah, there were a lot of other comfort watches and I have a feeling that if I thought about it, I probably have a lot more, but my memories of how I managed that first year in particular are really foggy. Same. I don't. Yeah. I'm like, I know I lived through 2020. I don't really know what I could tell you I actually did in 2020. I I can (laughs) look at particular, like particularly if I go back and I look at at what I wrote for work or things that we did podcast episodes about for Mm -hmm. work, I can remind myself, yes, I wrote about this. Yes, we did a show about this. And it feels like, I know I did it. It feels right. It feels familiar. Yes, I remember this. But 99 times out of 100, if people ask me, if I find myself telling people a story about something that happened during the pandemic, it'll be from 2021. It'll be from, it was still pandemic, but it was like kind of either right when I knew vaccinations were coming or post vaccinations for me, because most of 2020, it just doesn't, it doesn't spring to mind easily. Um, And that's when I couldn't write. And I think it makes sense. I think I think when I have no mental energy at all, when I am completely depleted, writing, you know, I think a lot of us thought, well, you know, this is going to be a great time to write because I got nothing else to do, right? I'm just going to be at home by myself. Now I can write my novel. Like, (laughs) didn't work that way for me at all, particularly in the early going. I was so depleted um, just by the experience and the experience of worry. I obviously had people in my life I was even more concerned about than I was concerned about myself. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't write. And in retrospect, I don't think there's anything I could have done to, to make it possible for me to write at that time. Yeah. I mean, you still produce flying solo. So I did, I think (laughs) once, once I got into that time where I felt a little more like, okay, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to be able to see people. I'm going to be able to go out again. 
um, without feeling, you know, nervous and all that stuff, not nervous. I mean, I'm still nervous, but, um, you know, when I, when I felt a little more hope, it became a little more possible. And I, I have to say, you know, it's so important in those kinds of moments to have the support of, of people like, you know, editors and agents and people like that, who just, you know, mine were just extraordinarily patient and helpful in saying like, look, if you need to take more time, we'll just take more time. For sure. Well, it's like I said, it's a very cozy book. It's lovely. Um, I just have one question left, which is what do you hope readers take away from reading Flying Solo? Um, You know, I am somebody who likes to take the kind of books that I love and tweak them a little bit. And so one of the things that I hope people will take away from this book is the satisfying feeling of reading a book that is, uh, you know, of a kind that they find satisfying, but that they also kind of let their, they let their brains chew a little bit on what is different about it. How is the ending a little bit different? How is the structure of the heroine's life a little bit different? How is the love interest a little different? Um, So I really hope it's a combination of kind of, like you say, a cozy book, but also a book that has a couple of kind of thinkers in it. Like, "Hmm, I wonder why this is this way when most books are not this way. Um, So, so that would be my, that would be my hope. Love it. Thank you so much, Linda, for coming on and chatting with me. Absolutely. It was my my great pleasure. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app!